Hey, good morning, everyone. Welcome. This is Just Human number 196. It is Monday. My computer has a case of the Mondays, but I don't have a case of the Mondays. Um, I have a case of I slept like two hours last night. Um, so I'm a, I'm really in need of this cup of coffee. Um, I feel like I didn't sleep at all because after our episode of Defected last night, which was pretty good and pretty funny, um, I just couldn't, I just couldn't turn my brain off. And, um, I started looking at some stuff over here and looking at some stuff over there and digging a little here. And before I knew it, it was like 4 AM and I tried to go to bed. I was trying so hard to fall asleep and, um, man, I just couldn't, I feel like, I think I slept from about six to seven. I think I got about an hour. Um, so pray for me that my my kids are okay with me taking a nap this afternoon because I, I think I'm gonna need it. Um but oh man, I we had a good episode of Defected last night, and we're gonna talk about today on the show, on this show, I'm gonna get into some the details of a couple of the topics we covered last night. And um that's that's what's gonna be served up. So um Guys, if you like the show, hit the thumbs up over on Rumble um, and and share it out. Um, my All of my links are in the description on Rumble or in my link tree. Buymeacoffee.com slash justhuman, justhuman.substack.com. And of course, if you need some honey, bensonhoneyfarms.com and use rep code justhuman. So it is good to be back. Sorry I took a week off, but also not sorry. I had a great time with my kids and my family. and. Um, I, I have no regrets. <laughs> uh, I mean, there are a lot of things I could have been, I could have gone live to talk about while my kids, uh, rough, like, you know, ran around the house acting crazy while I was on air, but I decided against that. I decided it was wiser to, uh, um, to not do that, but I am back today and, uh, we'll see if any bots visit this stream. Um, I am going to say CIA a number of times, so we'll, uh, we'll find out. All right, let's go. First thing I want to cover is um, this right here. I know that uh, X22 covered this post of mine, which is awesome. Shout out to Dave. Thank you very much. So what this is is that you may remember Charles McGonigal. He's the FBI uh, counterintel chief. He was the special agent in charge of the New York FBI counterintel office. And... Um, which is the largest and basically most important counterintelligence office that the FBI has. Um, he was special agent in charge of that for a number of years, and he was a key figure in a lot of things. Um, he worked the TWA Flight 800 investigation. He worked the 9-11 investigation. And then later on, he would come to work at the beginning of the uh, Carter Page FISA warrant, and spying, and also the handling of the Steele dossier. Uh, he was there at the very beginning, and what makes it even more interesting is that he was bought off by Oleg Deripaska, who is a central figure in uh, Russiagate slash Spygate. Um, many people tie back to Oleg Deripaska. And um, McGonagall was 
a double agent basically he was getting paid by by Deripaska for information and also for uh navigation of sanctions Deripaska was paying him to try and get sanctions lifted off of him and friends um very about as swampy as it gets okay so for everybody who's been wanting someone high up in the FBI to get arrested uh, I'd like to present to you Charles McGonagall he just got arrested well, not just. He got arrested back in January. So anyway, the point of me sharing this document or this screenshot and the reason I put these eyes right here, uh, by the way, he's indicted in two. There's two indictments for McGonagall. There's one in the SDNY. That's the Oleg Deripaska one. There's also one out of the D- out of D.C. That is the one related to him being bribed by the Albanians. Um, McGonagall just was, wasn't just a uh, a swampy guy for Deripaska. He was a swampy guy for some Albanians um, who were paying him for favors also. Um, and who knows what else he's been involved in. So there's two in do- there's two dockets for this guy because there's two indictments. And the one I'm concerned with most is the one out of the SDNY in New York because that's the one that connects to Oleg Deripaska. And what I had noticed last week is that these two sealed documents were filed in this case. And over on Pacer, if you scroll down, that's this is where I got that screenshot right here. Um, now, the sealed document, I, I was reading back, trying to get an idea of what it is. And I read back through here, and I didn't see anything that stood out to me as, oh, it's probably these things. Um, I didn't see anything in here that was like, oh, you need to file this under seal. And I didn't see anything that stood out to me. I may have missed it, but I didn't see anything that stood out to me in previous filings that would inform me of what these two sealed documents are. Now, they could be something a bit more mundane that is just temporarily filed under seal. And there's one from Deripaska's side and there's one from... um, the OJ side and they're going to be unsealed and I'll be like, ah, that's not as exciting as I thought it was. Okay. It's very possible. But the reason I'm excited about it is that it could be more than that. Uh, Sometimes when an indictment is first filed, it's filed as a sealed indictment. But before that it's filed as a sealed document and placed in vault. See this number one, that was the very first filing in this thing. Sealed document placed in vault. And then when it got unsealed, this docket was created. Right here, sealed document placed in vault. Enter twice. There's two documents. And what I'm hoping for is that it's a superseding indictment. What I'm hoping for is that they've discovered more things and they're charging, they've brought more charges. And this thing is about to level up. That's my hope. I don't know that to be the case. But I'm keeping my eye on it. And impatiently. And I'm hoping it's something extra juicy. And I feel like anything in this case is basically juicy. Um, I've I've really gotten... I've really gained a lot of interest in this case. I mean, I've been following it since uh, Charles McGonagall was raided. The news broke that he was raided by the FBI last fall, and um, I was I got really excited about it then. It was as we were preparing for the Danchenko trial, 
and I wondered if it had something to do with Durham back then. Um, I haven't seen anything in here that makes me think this was because of Durham, but I just can't shake that feeling that this is so close to the very origins of Spygate that I just got this feeling there's a Durham angle here. There's a Durham, there's more than what Seth Ducharm is, who is former Bars, former right hand man. I, I feel like there's this is just so close to Durham's special counsel, the subject matter of this indictment. And so I'm just wondering. And so I'm that's what I'm paying, that's what this is about, this post, and that's why that's what I'm paying attention to, and I'm checking it multiple times a day. <laughs> uh like a nerd hoping that it'll be unsealed. I'm so looking forward to covering this case. I noticed that today 417 is the redaction due date for request for redactions from a transcript of a conference that they held on March 8th. So by today they have to be they have to have their redaction uh request in and then um the deadline for that tra that transcript to come release is Let's see, transcript, redacted transcript dayline is 427. That transcript is going to be released in June. It's like 90 days or something like that between when transcripts are released. I'm looking forward to it. All right. Wait, do I want this to do this next? What was this? Oh, yeah. I um, we were covering the Clarence Thomas stuff last time I was on, and after I was done covering it, Clarence Thomas um put out a statement basically saying he did nothing wrong. He's he asked for advice when he first became a justice from his counsel about how to handle such matters as reporting these things. He got advice on how to follow the law and how to do it, and he's been following that advice ever since. Um. The media has continued to try and smear Clarence Thomas since I was last on and I covered that initial hit piece that came out of ProPublica. And I've noticed that one of the things that the reporting keeps on missing is that Clarence Thomas was treated the same by Harlan Crow as were other friends of Harlan Crow. So it wasn't that Clarence Thomas was getting this super special treatment that no one else got. It was actually the same treatment that other friends of Harlan Crow get and have gotten. Um, so that that speaks to the degree of what was going on there. And it just seems like Harlan Crow is a guy who is very generous in this way. Um, should Clarence Thomas have reported these things just to be safe? Maybe so, guys. Maybe so. Um Will he report them now? I think so, because there's new regulations involved now that make them report. And I think the media is taking advantage of this and they're launching their first salvo at Clarence Thomas on purpose because they hate this man. Um, they hate him more than they hate just about anybody except for Trump. And um, the, the whole point of the piece was to smear him. We we all know that. Uh, but Clarence Thomas did put out a um, a statement that brushed it off and said the things that we expected him to say basically. And it was fine. But the new angle that came out recently is that, um, Clarence Thomas has been getting these payments, uh, from a defunct real estate firm. 
and that this firm closed down over 15 years ago, but there's still money coming out of it being paid to Clarence Thomas. So this is the new scandal that he's getting these secret payments from a, uh, a, a real estate company that went bad, went belly up over 15 years ago. Um, and I liked what Andy Gruel had to say here, this law professor. Um, he said, Dear God, just as Thomas's forms erroneously referred to income from Ginger Limited 7632 Fairs Drive rather than Ginger LLC 7632 Fairs Drive. If this isn't an impeachable offense, then I just don't know what is. That's right. They listed LTD instead of LLC on the forms. So that's that's the rub. Clarence Thomas isn't getting secret payments from a defunct real estate firm. It's just that on his form, someone put LTD instead of LLC. And those are two different entities. One of them defunct, the other not. And uh, I really liked his comment right here, responding to the sarcasm that writing LTD rather than LLC threatens democracy itself. <laughs> um, that's basically what the Washington Post has, has been reduced to, is that writing LTD instead of LLC is a threat to democracy. That's their level of attack on Clarence Thomas, because that's how little they have. God bless Clarence Thomas. All right. We are going to talk about the leaked document scandal. And I apologize for uh, repeating some of the same commentary on it that I had last night. Um, I'll have new commentary, but I will have some of the same things to say about it um, as I did last night. Um, let me pull these up. I have some commentary from, um, some different, uh, some different folks some folks that I respect and, uh, no matter where you're at on this, this investigation, I think you'll get something out of this. So first I need to frame it up. I actually needed to move this over here. I think. Which one is my thread? Yeah, there. Okay. I'm zoomed in too much. All right, so this came out before the arrest. And I mentioned it. Um, I think I mentioned it last night on the show. Yeah, I did. I did. And I also shared this article. Y'all probably seen it going around. Um, but just to back up and recap a bit. So we have this guy named OG was his name on the, uh, all right, well, we have this air guardsman and his friends who had their ser discord server and the discord server was in the name, like the real legit name of the uh, guy who was the air guardsman and leaked this information, which is how he was found. All of his financial information and personal information was linked to the server that he was paying for from discord. So that was pretty easy for the FBI to identify who was behind this whole thing. Um, we, we covered last time on the show that remember at first the media was like, 
this stuff isn't real. And then it's fake. It's altered. You can't trust this. And then their next mantra, their next angle of, of narrative was that it was possibly some pro-Russia Ukrainians who hacked U.S. intelligence and got a hold of this material and then put it online. And then their next thing they were saying was that it's an extreme right wing group who's pro-Russia. Um, and then they caught wind of what was going on. And I don't know where the media first picked up the trail. I don't know if it's because they had a line in at Discord and maybe Discord alerted friends in the media that the FBI had requested information about the server. Um, but the media does have their own investigators. And I think they were watching what FBI Justice and Pentagon were doing. And I think they were doing their own investigation and they all pretty easily wound up pointing to the same guy. And it's not that it wasn't that hard to solve. It really wasn't that difficult to figure out who this guy was if you're a professional investigator. The leaks, though, are not helpful to the deep state. And this is where my opinion on this thing differs from some other folks. Is that because these leaks, the information that's actually in these classified docs, of which there's reportedly 300 photos. It's Remember at first they were saying there's about a dozen. First media reports, there's about a dozen of these documents or images. And then it was, there's 40 to 60. And then there was, there's just around a hundred. Well, now there's 300 because they found out this guy's been doing it for months. Um, the Washington post and New York times got interviews with other people that were on that server. And the FBI also got interviews with them. So it could be that the people who were on that server with this guy went to the, went to the law enforcement and ratted him out and then went to the media to make sure and get their own stories out there to protect themselves, right? Makes sense. So that's that helps to explain why there's been this trajectory of both media and justice department um, overlapping and chasing down this guy and the media trying to make the whole story about this guy and not the classified stuff. And what really matters here to me is, well, one of the things that really matters is what this classified information is, the damage that it does to our national security and to just the intelligence agencies and the conflict in um, Ukraine. And then how this guy was able to do what he did. What I picked out from this article from Washington Examiner that stood out to me the most is that three people who work for a U.S. government agency in Northern Virginia have been given polygraph exams in connection with the Pentagon and Justice Department's investigation into the source of the leaks, according to a report in Soldier of Fortune magazine, which described the people as, quote, civilians who do not work for the Department of Defense. Now, I describe this as a way of saying, how do you write CIA without actually writing CIA? Because this sounds exactly like how you would describe CIA or CIA contractors without literally saying CIA. It could be another agency. That's possible. There are many government agencies in Northern Virginia. <laughs> many. But because they felt the need to specifically say or include in this, civilians who do not work for the Department of Defense... 
it leads me to think, oh, that's CIA. They're making a distinction there so that you don't think it's someone working for DOD because DOD doesn't want to be blamed for these leaks. That's one of the tells in this paragraph, in my opinion. The other thing is that the some of the documents that this guy posted were CIA documents that only people who are upper echelon CIA and DNI would have. And so the question is, how does this guardsman out on Cape Cod get these documents, which should only be in the very tight compartmented segment of upper tier intelligence community people? How does this 21-year-old have access to that? Three people meet, being given polygraph exams in connection with the investigation tells you that they're being interrogated. They're being questioned about, did you provide this? Do you have any knowledge of this? Do you have any knowledge of how this person obtained it? Do you have any knowledge of materials being compromised? Like they've been, three people were immediately identified. I mean, that's pretty quick um, and have been, Given that's the whole point of the polygraph exam is they're trying to detect what the if these people know more than what they're saying. Um, so I don't think this investigation ends with this kid, I really don't. So, anyway, Jack Douglas Teixeira was charged with two counts this morning. Now, I'm going to pronounce his name Teixeira because there was a famous baseball player who I watched play baseball for a very long time, and his name was Teixeira, or that's how the media pronounced his name, and it's in my head that Teixeira is how you pronounce this. I could be wrong, but that's what I'm going with. Going with what I know. Jack Douglas Teixeira was charged with two counts this morning, 18 U.S.C. 793 B&D, which is unauthorized retention of, and transmission of national defense information, and 18 U.S.C. 1924, which is unauthorized removal and retention of classified documents or material. What's interesting about these charges is that this comes under the Espionage Act. And in order for him to be charged under the Espionage Act, it would seem that he needs to be doing this for the benefit of some other entity, some other nation. Actually, I need to look up the other one. Hold up. It was this one. 793. Um, and it doesn't see, yeah, 18 U.S.C. 793 is the Espion Espionage Act. Um, and what this document says, or what this, uh, it says B and D. Okay, so the subjects in B and D are the ones that he's being charged under, these B and D. Okay, so B, whoever for the purpose of aforesaid and with like intent or reason to believe copies, takes, makes, or may obtains, or attempts to copy, take, make, or obtain any sketch, photograph, or photographic negative blueprint, plan, map, model, instrument, appliance, document, writing, or note of anything connected with national defense. Well, he did all those things, didn't he? He, uh, he made copies, he, uh, both by hand, like writing things down, typing things out. He made photographic copies. He he uh, he took copies of them, took pictures of them, put them back. So, okay, this makes sense. But then D, 
Whoever lawfully having possession of access to control over or being entrusted with any document, writing, code book, signal book, sketch, photograph, photographic negative, blueprint, plan, map, model, instrument, appliance, or note relating to national defense or information relating to national defense, which information the possessor has reason to believe could be used to the injury of the United States or to the advantage of any foreign nation willfully communicates, delivers, transmit, or causes to be communicated, delivered, or transmitted, or attempts to communicate, deliver, or transmit, or cause to be communicated, delivered, or transmitted. The same to any person not entitled to receive it or willfully retains the same and fails to deliver it on demand of an officer or employee of the United States. Well, he did that. He took those things and then he transmitted them to a group of people. Now, in the affidavit, which I kind of want to go through with y'all because it's not that long, but I'm just going to try and pick out some of the highlights of the affidavit. Let's see. All right, so what they have for him is they have a charging document because he hasn't actually been indicted. Like there hasn't been a grand jury convened to look at evidence and then indict him. It's a complaint. They've charged him with these two counts as part of a criminal complaint. And then that complaint is supported by an F an, an affidavit sworn out by an FBI agent who was investigating. There will probably, I'm thinking there will be an indictment uh, that will give us more information, but this is what there is right now. And this is the probable cause um, the FBI has been investigating the unauthorized disclosure of national defense information. Some of the documents bear image, Im some of the images bear the classification top secret in their markings, which leads the, the FBI agent to believe that these things might actually be classified and this is a crime. So they contact a social, it was, con it was posted on a social media platform that would be Discord. So social media platform one equals Discord in this affidavit. User one is the Discord member who started giving those interviews and went to the FBI and started talking to them. So he's going to probably end up being witness one in this case. But that's who user one is. He's the basically a witness. Subject username is OG or Jack Teixeira, the actual air guardsman that you've heard of. And then the server that's referred to here is called Thug Shaker Central. That was the discord server room where they were he was uploading this stuff so it says on or about april 10th 2023 the fbi interviewed a user of social media platform and according to user one an individual using a particular username that'd be og or subject username began posting what appeared to be classified information on social media platform one in or about december of 2022 so this stuff has been getting posted for three months or thereabout. According to user one, the individual using the subject username was the administrator of the server. And user one indicated that the purpose of the server was to discuss geopolitical affairs and current and historical wars. User one, the individual using the subject username initially posted the government information, the classified information as paragraphs of text. However, in or about January 2023, the subject began posting photographs of documents on server one that contained what appeared to be classified markings, 
of a US official US documents. According to user one, one of the documents that was posted on server one by the individual was a document that described the status of the Russia-Ukraine conflict, including troop movements on a particular date. The government document is based on sensitive U.S. intelligence gathered through classified sources and methods and contains national defense information. An original classification authority has confirmed that the government document is classified at the top, top secret secure compartmented information level, TSSCI. Now, what they mean here by an original classification authority means that some other, whoever the agency is that had that information and classified it originally, whether it was DOD, NSA, CIA, whoever it was, they confirmed with the agency that, yep, that's our information and it is classified. As described above, the unauthorized disclosure of top secret information reasonably could be expected to cause exceptionally grave damage to the national security of the United States. User 1 told the FBI that he spoke to the individual using subject username at various times using a video chat application, voice calls, or chat functions on server 1. According to user 1, during one of those conversations, the individual using the subject username explained that he had become concerned that he may be discovered making the transcripts of text in the workplace, so he began taking the documents to his resident and photographing them. That's another key question for investigators. How is it that this guy was able to, one, get access to this stuff, but two, much more, remove it from the base and take it home and take photographs of it? User one also described to the FBI his interactions with the individual posting under the subject username. In the course of those interactions, user one learned that the individual posting under the username called himself Jack and appeared to reside in Massachusetts and claimed that he was in in the United States Air National Guard. User one described the individual posting under the subject username as a white male who was clean cut in his 20s to 30s. On April 12th, Discord provided the FBI with records pursuant to a legal process, meaning they gave, they sent, they sent a search warrant to Discord saying, Hey, we need uh, all the information you got on this server under this name belonging to this guy. These records included information related to user one's social media platform account and subscriber information for the administrator of server one to which user one belonged. According to these records, the individual using subject username is the administrator of Thug Shaker Central. (laughs) And his billing address was associated with it. So, boom, right there. You got it. They got him. Teixeira listed the North Dighton, Massachusetts residents as his primary residence on employment paperwork with the U.S. National Guard and also with Discord. Now, Tachera is an E3 Airman First Class, and his job title is Cyber Defense Operations Journeyman. He held top secret and SCI levels of security clearance. So, it seems that he did have the clearance level to be able to view these documents. But how did he have the access? 
And how did he, how was he able to access so many that you would think don't normally come across in front of him at his Air National Guard station and in his regular job? And then second question, how was he able to remove physical copies of this intelligence to, from the base to his home? image them, post them online, and then return them without being noticed. Since May 2022, he has been serving as an E3, Airman First Class, and has had this these clearances. Now, to me, it's difficult to believe that this kid had this access to this level of material, but it does seem that he did. And... That's a, I mean, we, there's more questions to answer here, but it does seem that he did somehow, whether he should have is another, is another question. A second U S government agency unnamed in the affidavit noticed that Teixeira was possibly searching for any classified reporting on what he had done. And this gives him away big time. Another U S agency which can monitor certain searches on its classified networks. On April 6, 2023, Teixeira used his government computer to search classified intelligence reporting for the word leak. I'm guessing this is either the NSA or the DIA, but they were able to either, I don't know if they noticed at the time, but they noticed that Teixeira was looking for the word leak and meaning he was trying to figure what he was trying to do is he was trying to figure out if there was any classified information regarding what he had been doing. So he was using his computer that he used to access this stuff to try and find if there was any classified information about what he had done. In other words, if they were on to him. Now, I personally think that this leaked document scandal is really, really bad for the deep state. And as I said last night on Defected, I don't see how it, I don't see this as a deep state operation. I know a lot of people are thinking that the deep state made this leak happen and then they're blaming this guy as a patsy and they're doing it because they want to promote the Restrict Act which is an act that is basically a digital Patriot Act. Um, I get why people are thinking that. I don't think it's flawed to reason your way to that. I just don't think it holds up. And the reason I don't think it holds up is because the information that's in these classified materials is so damaging to the deep state to the Ukraine conflict, to NATO, to the intelligence community. I think it's so damaging to the media and the deep state at large. I think it's just so damaging to them that they wouldn't have leaked it. Um, I think instead, they, if they wanted to do something like that, I think they would have done something different. Um, I think what's happened is that this guy was doing this. I think he absolutely was doing it. They have the key logs of him accessing these materials. Um, every, every, all of his keystrokes are tracked. I mean, he's, they got him. Um, I think that 
he was doing this for at a minimum to try and impress his friends basically with his access. It doesn't appear that he tried to be a whistleblower or that he was like trying to sound an alarm or anything. He was doing it for a private group. So I'm guessing he was doing it to impress his friends. Um, but I do think there's another layer here and that may shed more light on why he was doing it. Um, but I, I think what is going on is that he, he did this on his, well, I don't know about it on his own even. I don't even know if he did it on his own, but I think he was doing this as, and it wasn't part of a deep state op, but what's happened is it's so bad for the deep state and the media that they have seized on this and are running interference and are trying to steer the entire conversation towards the restrict act. They realize how bad this is for them. They immediately agreed not to talk about what was in the documents, called them fake, called them doctored. They're ignoring those and they're pointing directly at this kid and making the story about this kid and his friends on the server being right wing and these social media platforms being breeding grounds for radical groups. And we need the restrict act for national security. I think they're trying to steer everything towards that. Um, instead of deal with what is actually in the substance of these documents. Let me hold off on this one. Let me hold off on that one for a little bit. Um, I may skip it. So, Thomas Massey responded to this article in Breitbart that is quoting Cash Patel. And he asked, you know, how does an E3 in the Air National Guard get access to this material? And Ezra responds, well, who do you think is doing the bulk of the work? And he's not, he's not definitely not wrong. We're talking about Ezra Cohen Watnick here. He's not wrong, but he's saying that, look, he, and he went on to make the point in other, other um, tweets that, look, it's these young people who are doing this stuff, um, who do this, this work to, to write your briefings and um, to, they handle this material and then it gets served up. It gets served up to people in higher office or higher officials and but it's it's young people like a 21 year old air guardsman who does a lot of this grunt intel work and he penned this tweet he said surprising to see so many former senior officials questioning how a 21 year old enlisted airman had access to compartmented info who do they think prepared their daily intelligence read books and maintained their email accounts i always made a point of visiting different offices in the Pentagon to meet the people who worked for me. You quickly learn how many are just out of college or high school. We are blessed as a country to have so many people from the next generation stepping up to serve. I mean, I think Ezra's right, but what I'm, what I'm unsure of is how all the documents that he got he got access to like a lot of them that I have seen and I haven't seen them all, but some of them that I've seen, I'm like, okay, yeah, I can see how this kid would have access to this. He was at air national guard. It's an intelligence wing. 
his job is in cyber. All right. I can see how he came across, how he came across with this stuff. What I don't understand is how he got across, how he came across all the things that he came across. Not surprising that a 21 year old airman who is an E3 and already has TSSCI clearances came across information that was TSSCI. But it's a step further, the quantity and degree and significance of the intel he came across and then what he was able to do with it speaks to something more going on. I'm going to skip that. Now, what Cash Patel had to say in that article that Thomas Massey tweeted out is Cash Patel, former chief of staff at the Pentagon and former deputy director of national intelligence, in an exclusive interview on Friday... With Breitbart News, questioned the involving narrative over the Pentagon leak, specifically that a 21-year-old Massachusetts Air National Guard Reservist acted alone to leak it. Patel, a former federal prosecutor, said he does not believe for a, quote, for a single second that this guy, a 21-year-old Air National Guardsman, ran this operation alone, end quote. Patel said first the suspected leaker, Jack Teixeira, would not have access to the information without someone within the Department of Defense or the intelligence community giving it to him, providing it to him, or telling him it should be put out there. It's just not possible, he said. He said even though he worked in information technology, he still would not have had access to the information. Quote, you can be the biggest IT person in DOD and you are still compartmented off of the actual information. Almost never does an IT person need to know, as we say, the substance of the intelligence. Their job is to provide the security information systems around it to protect any disclosures. This is crazy sensitive stuff. 99% of people who have a top secret SCI clearance don't have access to this information. And me, as a former deputy DNI and chief of staff of the DOD and publisher of the Presidential Daily Brief, with the highest security classification, knows that literally there is not a lot of people in the U.S. that have access to this kind of intel. It's done for a reason, so that this doesn't happen. Patel said that while the Joint Chiefs of Staff's daily brief produced by its Directorate of Intelligence, the J-2, goes out to thousands of people, there is underlying contributing information that is compartmented and only goes to a few people. Quote, the underlying intel... That's very sensitive because it exposes how we got it, who we got it from, when we got it, and whether we can get it again, how it is delivered. The Air Force confirmed to Breitbart News that Teixeira is Airman First Class, which is the third lowest enlisted rank in the Air Force and is a cyber transport systems journeyman, which is essentially an IT technician. He entered the Air National Guard in September 26, 2019. He is based at the Otis Air National Guard base in Massachusetts. Second, Patel said the way the classified information was put out suggests Teixeira did not act alone. Quote, whether he's an IT or not, it's irrelevant. The way it was produced, the way it was put out there, pages, printed photographs taken, published online. This is a methodical way of releasing classified information illegally. I think he's definitely working with other people in DOD or the Intel space to get this information out. This is an Assange style operation. 
this kid, no offense to him at 21 years old, cannot put out this five months unlawful disclosure of sensitive intelligence. Patel said the tradecraft around the way the leaks are being disclosed also suggests a cover-up of how damaging the leaks are. Quote, I think the DOD and the intelligence community gave it to the New York Times and the Washington Post. They're giving to them to say, we need, you know, we needed a cover-up. We need to make sure people think Ukraine's working. We need to make it seem like this, there's this one rogue 21-year-old actor out of some airbase in Cape Cod. The amount of intelligence they got. Somebody's giving them that type of documentation. It's not just readily available. Where did they get it from? That doesn't come from anyone who doesn't have direct access at the end in the United States. That the New York Times and Washington Post broke this story that also leads me to believe it's the same trade, gra- trade craft from Russiagate. That when deep state actors want stuff out there, they put it out to their sources. Am I to believe that these two newspapers found this guy out first before the FBI? That's absurd. That's the timeline we're being told. So now we have better investigators at the New York Times and the Washington Post than in the FBI? This is an extensive cover-up. It's going to go on for some time and they needed a quick victory. This kid should be prosecuted. No questions asked. No questions about it in my mind. He broke the law and he needs to be prosecuted. But... It's a CYA operation for sure. Because we haven't gotten to the worst of it. We're not there yet. There's more stuff. And you know, there's probably more stuff floating around in these chat rooms and whatnot. But they don't want to talk about him. They just want to talk about the kid and not the verified intelligence. He said that the intelligence shows that the Pentagon and President Joe Biden have been lying to the American people about how well the Ukraine war was going. Quote, I think the substance of the intel, it it says basically our effort in Ukraine, our $100 billion effort is failing. And I think that's why this ignited such a firestorm in DOD, because they've been exposed and no one's had any answers. So I don't know if Congress is going to act, but the Gang of Eight, the Armed Services Committee, possibly even intel committees need to jump in on this. Why hasn't the Armed Services Committee subpoenaed Mark Milley or Lloyd Austin and demanded an answer under oath as to why they have been lying to the President of the United States or permitted him to lie on the success and failure of our operations in Ukraine, who we have there, and how much money we're spending there? Because they've been telling us for months and months and months that we're on the verge of beating Putin. Why wasn't this intelligence briefed to these members in Congress who are supposed to oversee our highest levels of intelligence? And if they were told it, then it's an even bigger problem because it clearly shows the U.S. position in Ukraine is failing. And for all the reasons Cash Patel just listed, that's why I don't think this was a deep state leak. The damage it's doing doesn't doesn't strike me that way. Now, J.E. Dyer... Ex Navy, uh, um, ex Navy intelligence officer, I believe, and who does great articles. I really like her work. Says, look, working with IT infrastructure is a way to get access, but it depends on your system privileges. That's why sysops need to have clearances. This is not surprising. People only think it is because the way the story is being framed. 
She has a decent point about that. Now, Patel mentioned Patel mentioned that the media beating the FBI to who it was. Now, I don't think they really did. I don't think that I don't think the media really did beat the FBI to figuring out who it was. I think it just seems like it. It's not like the it's not like the FBI gives updates on their investigation by the minute. Um, but one way that I suspect media was able to stay on the trail, and one way that I think that they were probably getting a lot of help is from their friends at Bellingcat, which is basically a CIA operation. Um, pretty much everyone there is CIA, including Eric Toller, um, who said, in response to this, Eric Toller said, I found him through his Steam profile. We'll write a step-by-step on, how the, pro- on the process at some point. In this quote tweet, tweet, Carlos Gunnera said, Eric, I understand the matching kitchen countertop and the floor tiling, but how did you come up with Teixeira's steam profile in the first place? Was it pure serendipity or is this an OSINT methodology behind it? Or did you simply have a suspect name to start with? And he responds, common friends with other members of the server. I would not be surprised to learn that Bellingcat being attached to the CIA as they are was aware of the particulars of this leak and fed that information to the media in order to help them stay on the trail and help them craft their cover up. Jay Dyer commented at this point, I doubt any of this is legit description of info being happened upon. We wasted far too much time on that credulous phase of unfolding Russiagate. None of it was investigation. But yes, Bellingcat roster is an obvious source of, quote, friends who are members of the server. Something else this makes me think. Was this kid being solicited? Was this kid being solicited? by someone to acquire this intel. Again, with Eric Toller, he says, I know Glenn, he's making fun of Glenn Greenwald. They've been having a a bit of a spat on it because Glenn Greenwald called him out saying, look, Bellingcat is a CIA front. And Eric Toller responds, I know Glenn is desperately trying to make Jack out into a whistleblower but these documents are not coming from him. He never intended a single one of these documents to be seen by the public. They're coming from his friends in the discord server and they aren't going to be arrested. Jay Dyer says, bookmark this. He to never intended a single one of these to be seen by the public. An espionage act charge needs either demonstrable connection with foreign government or demonstrating he did have some category of public exposure intent. 
I think that's a good thought. And I think it's something to pay attention to in this, in this case, as it develops that the charges may change. They may have used espionage act for now, but we'll shift to something else. If this guy wasn't actually trying to share it with anybody, like if they can't, if the espionage charges can't hold up, they're going to bring a different charge, but the espionage act charge. I, I, I kind of wonder is that, did they put that there? Cause that's the direction their investigation is leading them to is that there's some other element involved here with which this information was going to be shared to not his private group, but others outside of that private group. And that's what allows them to bring this espionage chart under the SP these charges under the espionage act. Now, this is what they were referring to at the granite countertop. Bellingcat tried to say that they were able to figure out it was to share by comparing his countertops. Um, I noticed that in some of the images that were posted online of these documents, um, that the guy was including other items in the framing of the document. So like there was one picture I saw that had like a brochure you could barely see or some type of pamphlet and you could see the, the flooring and you could see the counter. And I remember thinking that's not a professional because a professional would make sure you couldn't see anything else about the room he was in unless he wanted you to find that room. Um, and it seems like that's what he did with a lot of these images is that he took a picture of the document but he didn't make sure to crop it so you couldn't see anything else. And yeah, is it possible that they match the countertops? Yeah, it's possible. Um, but I don't think, uh, I think they got some help. All right. I'm going to, I'm going to end this topic on this right here. This little five minute clip of, uh, What's his name? Judge Knapp, Judge Napolitano talking to this ex-CIA guy. I'm going to let this be the end of this topic, and I'm going to go refill my coffee cup while this segment plays. I just think he has something really interesting to say. Let me make sure I got the audio. There we go. I got it. All right. Let me get this over here. Uh, oh, I have it muted up here. My bad. Larry, in the past 12 hours... Larry Johnson uh, joins us now. Uh, Larry, in the past 12 hours, the Washington Post has come out with a story that seems too fantastic to believe that the leaker of the um, uh, secured top secret no foreign uh, documents prepared by and for the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and his uh, team is in fact a 21-year-old Air National Guardsman from Fort Bragg uh, or Fort Sill, Oklahoma. Uh, and uh, that this was originally shared amongst a group of teenage gamers, uh, of all things. Is this even remotely credible? No, no. It's a lie. It's fabrication. Uh, the Washington Post, the first, this first surfaced with a cat, Bellingcat. Bellingcat is a, a front for the British intelligence. That's where the story first surfaced. Washington Post then picks it up and the Guardian then picks it up on the same day. So this is a coordinated media strategy. This is a disinformation campaign. 
the documents are real. I'm not saying that the documents are fabrications. They are not. But this cover story that's been manufactured to explain how these documents came to be produced, it just falls apart. The most simply falls apart based upon one document in that mix, which is listed as CIA Operations Center report, top secret. I worked in the CIA Operations Center. I helped prepare those reports. That's an internal CIA document. No one on a U.S. military base anywhere in the world will have access to that kind of document for starters. Who, so who or what is spreading the mis, uh, misinformation? Is this CIA feeding garbage to their friends in the American and British uh, media? I, I put it above the CIA. This is within the, this is elements connected to the office of the director of national intelligence, because that's the one place where you can bring together CIA, FBI, NSA, DIA, all the key elements. They are the one place in the U.S. government where you can assemble all this material. And the way this thing was so neatly packaged up, you know, until I saw that CIA document, I was inclined to believe that this was simply the act of a whistleblower wanting to flag the problems about the public discrepancy between what Lloyd Austin, the Secretary of Defense, and Mark Milley, the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the lies they were telling in public as opposed to the actual reality of what they're being briefed on uh, and secret and top secret briefings every day. How embarrassed is the uh, Biden White House, the Pentagon, and Langley CIA over these leaks? Uh, some are embarrassed and horrified by it, but what I think the strategy that's underway is this information was leaked with a variety of purposes to prepare the U.S. public for the crash landing that's going to take place with respect to U.S. foreign policy, the crash landing in Ukraine, the crash landing in China. In fact, we're already seeing elements of just the, if you call it the- Are you saying this was a controlled leak yes. done by management, not done by some Edward Snowden, Bradley right. Manning type? Yeah, by- there's some elements within management who thought this was a good idea. I mean, this this shows how both unprofessional and ridiculous it is. I mean, and dangerous. And the information that was leaked about Israel, part of that comes from a FISA. Uh, you know, it's got a FISA classification on it, which that does necessarily mean this is Department of Justice FBI territory. So again, there's no way that some National Guardsman who's doing TDY at Fort Bragg, would have access to that. And, and I'm, I'm not basing that upon what happened to me 40 years ago. I, for 23 years, for 23 years, up until about three years ago, I worked in these skiffs, and I still have friends that do, who are retired CIA and retired NSA and, and retired FBI, and I talked to them, and they're still seeing the material. None of them, none of them have seen it anything like this, particularly that CIA Operations Center document or the FISA document. That, that right. They have complete access to the high side, the top secret side. They have special access programs, SAP clearances. So that's why I say this thing is this thing is too tidy a package. This has been wrapped up nice and neatly. This is like an episode of Law and Order. 
I think everything he had to say there is worth keeping in mind. It makes a lot of sense. It makes a whole lot of sense. There's another layer here. I've been saying it since the very beginning. There's there's another there's another layer to this thing that isn't quite quite exposed yet. Um real quick mention. I shared this article on my socials the other day, well yesterday. And I do think it's worth a read. Um I haven't decided what I think about it. And sometimes I do that. Sometimes I share I share articles and I don't have some grand analysis of them or you know I don't have a um a solid take on them yet. I just find them interesting so I share the article and I just kind of put it out there for people to to take a look at and sometimes I read y'all's comments and that informs my thinking of it or someone asks a question or makes a comment that um makes me dismiss the article or confirm something I was thinking or uh, adds to something I was already thinking. Um, so anyway, I did that with this article yesterday because I found it interesting and worth considering. Um, I do feel like it's a bit of an op. Um, I feel like this is part of the rollout of pushing people towards the restrict act is to go after this social media account but I'm not so sure this social media account isn't worthy of being scrutinized, let's say. Um, so I just want to give some quick, quick comment on it that this is about the Donbass Davushka uh, Telegram channel and Twitter channel that has become pretty popular over the past year because of the, the conflict in uh, Ukraine. And they share a lot of pro-Russia stuff, a lot. And um, it's actually a pretty good channel to follow if you're looking for some information that isn't mainstream U.S. news information. But apparently the person running it and the person that this image is loosely based on and seems to be the main person behind the account or administrator is a U.S. enlisted aviation electronics technician whose real name is Sarah Bills who lives in Washington state near Whidbey Island and um, worked at the U S Naval air station on Whidbey Island up until last November when they got an honorable discharge. Um, and this was one of the first, if not the first major account. So probably the first account that had, you know, like more than 25,000 followers. One, definitely one of the first accounts with a significant following to share the stuff that Teixeira had posted on his server. So somehow those classified documents made their way to this account, which then shared them, which then got the attention of so many other organizations. And that's how the document, it's part of the origin story. This social media account, uh, Don Bastavushka is part of the origin story of this classified document leak becoming known. And um, so this hit piece is on how this person is basically posing as a Russian and they are, I found some evidence that where they've, they've tried to, where I found an audio recording where she basically faked a, uh, a Ukrainian or Russian accent and didn't do a very good job. 
um, has tried to tell a story about how she was in Ukraine uh, fighting in the Donbass back in 2014, but public records show that she was actually here in the U.S. going through a divorce, I believe, at that same time. There's some iffy stuff with this channel. And the only reason I, the main reason I want to highlight it, one, I did confirm that this is a real person, by the way, because I found this news article from 2021 about a, a, an accident on the highway that she was involved in. And it mentions uh, Sarah Bills of Oak Harbor, which is near Whidbey Island, Oak Harbor resident, Sarah Bills, age 36. And it just, it matches her. And I'm pretty sure this is her who was in this accident. Um, so this is a real person. This isn't a made up person that this article is about, but it seems like her online persona is made up. Now in her defense, she says that the account isn't just run by her. It's her and a group of other people who are from around the world who share information to that account and they all run it together. Um, I do think the media is making a play here to try and damage social media and specifically telegram and Twitter and in favor of the restrict because they're trying to support the restrict act and expansion of the surveillance state and more controls and regulations on the internet. Um, but I think putting that aside, I think this article is a good lesson or you can learn a good lesson from this is that you need to be careful who you follow and that accounts who hide behind avatars that aren't really them is something that should make you extra skeptical and they deserve scrutiny. And you should be aware that the person on the other end who doesn't have a real profile pic and who you never see on screen, you don't really know who they are or what they're involved with or where they're getting their information. And it just, it pays to be wise to the information war that we are in. This is part of the information war. Um, sometimes it's necessary for person or persons to develop an anonymous account and share information anonymously because it's safer for them that way, because they, they're in a career or in some other circumstance where if they were public with who they actually are, they would make their lives more difficult. There are circumstances where being anonymous online makes perfect sense and is the wise choice, the better choice. But there are also circumstances where people use it to hide who they are because if you knew who they were, you wouldn't be taking their information as credible, right? So I liked some of the stuff this account shared. I found it interesting to get a different perspective, but knowing now that they misrepresented themselves pretty egregiously, um, not too good. I'm, I'm super sus of anything this channel shares now. So anyway, and y'all, I see y'all mentioning, am I talking about burning bright? No, <laughs> although that is funny. <laughs> All right. Now, this is what I stayed up thinking about last night and reading more about, and it has to do with that 9-11 document I talked about, I shared yesterday, and I talked about and defected. 
Um, for me, I think for a lot of people looking at 9-11, um, 9-11 is their, either their red pill event or it's their, their wake up event. Um, for a lot of people, it's the reason they joined the military, inspired them to join the military or enjoy law enforcement. Um, for, for me, it's a, uh, I don't know if it's a red pill event. I don't think it, when I was interviewed by Jordan Sather like a year ago, um, 9-11 really wasn't the red pill event for me, but I was highly interested in it because, and I talked about this when I did that interview, that I did a um, a research paper in high school on the uh, the first World Trade Center bombing. And that got me really interested in terrorism and um, and dealing with radical Islamic terrorism specifically. Um, and I just always had that interest in, in, in that subject matter and Al Qaeda and, um, researching it led me to find the connection between the Mujahideen and Al Qaeda and the CIA really early. And I had a lot of questions about why the CIA being so involved with Al Qaeda in Afghanistan and then a decade later, them carrying out attacks on America. And I really didn't know how to synthesize that stuff, but it was, it stood out to me and I became aware of it before 9 11. And then when 9 11 happened, I knew as soon as it happened that it was Al Qaeda, that this was a terrorist attack by Al Qaeda because I had already become familiar with so many of the people who it would would turn out were behind the attack, at least on the Al Qaeda side. And so the subject matter is like, it feels like going to an, like visiting an old dig for me. Now for a lot of other people, it's their red pill moment because they've, they've bought into some nine 11 truth idea, whatever it is for them. And I see there's a variety of them these days. Um, a variety of explanations for 9-11, what it was and what happened and who's behind it. Um, and I think everybody has some things right. But for me, going back, seeing this, some of this information, it really had, it's like, it's almost like a nostalgia feel. Um, cause it reminds me of research I did a long, long time ago. And, um, I don't know. I just have a, I have a, a weird feeling about it and I want to be like super respectful with it uh, because I think that it is a, I think the truth about nine 11 um, coming out will change people on the left and the right. I think it's one of those, the truth of the real truth about it will awaken so many Americans to the deep state in the U S and what the CIA has been willing to do um, in order to achieve their own goals for their own power. Um, what I find frustrating, what I find frustrating about researching nine 11 
today and sharing information that comes out about it today is that so many people have cemented themselves to their own their own theories that they are unwilling to look at information with a fresh eye and so it becomes difficult to discuss this matter because i get a whole bunch of comments from people just yet basically just yelling whatever their theory is in the comments instead of looking at the new information and seeing if it maps onto some of the information they already have and just looking at it as like, does this fit? Does this not fit? Why doesn't it fit? Um, and for me, every document that comes out, whether it fits with something I already thought or negates something I thought it to me, it brings us a step closer to getting to the truth. And I want to go back to September 12th, 2021. Catherine Harridge put out this story, FBI's investigation into 9-11, first document released following Biden's promise to declassify materials. Now, I think a lot of us would have scoffed at the idea that the Biden administration was going to declassify 9-11, right? But he has been. Another one of those contradictions with Biden that should make you consider that something more is going on with this administration. It says the FBI on Saturday released the first document related to the 9-11 attack since President Biden ordered the declassification of more records last week, unveiling a memo detailing significant logistic support that two of the Saudi hijackers received in the U.S., the document, which is heavily redacted, comes from a secret FBI investigation into 9-11 dubbed Operation Encore, which centered on the two hijackers who lived in San Diego and who have, may have assisted them. The 16-page document is dated April 4th, 2016, and describes a November 2015 FBI interview with an unidentified individual related to his pending U.S. citizenship application. The interview was intended to, quote, ascertain the circumstances of his contact with people who provided significant logistical support to two 9-11 hijackers, Nawaf al-Hazmi and Khalid al-Mihar. One focus was the role of a Saudi national named Omar al-Bayoumi, who had helped the hijackers get settled in San Diego. Bayoumi co-signed their lease on an apartment that helped them open a bank account. The 9-11 Commission report from 2004 had said Bayoumi's initial meeting with the hijackers came through a chance encounter at a restaurant in Los Angeles and that investigators had seen, quote, no credible evidence that he believed in violent extremism or knowingly aided extremist groups. According to the document released Saturday, Bayoumi had allegedly talked about the need for the Islamic community to take action and that they were at jihad citing an FBI interview approximately one month after 9-11 with the ex-wife of an unidentified individual who claimed she had met with Bayoumi multiple times. Bayoumi is described in the document as having been, quote, treated with great respect at the Saudi consulate in Los Angeles. That's right. So I remember this from a separate investigation that when Bayoumi went to the consulate, uh, in Los Angeles, the Saudis treated him as if he was, he had some kind of office. Like they knew, they knew exactly who he was and they regarded him as some sort of official. 
like kind of the way you would a military officer or something like that. He was an employee at a Saudi aviation company, but the document released on Saturday cited witnesses who described him as a ghost employee who would not show up for work. The document also suggested that he planned his initial meeting with the hijackers and that he had multiple phone conversations with the roommates of someone who provided support for Osama bin Laden. I'm not sure who they're referring to here, but I wonder if it is um, Ali Muhammad, who is one of the most sinister individuals in history. If you don't know who Ali Muhammad is, there's a great book about him and what he did. There's also a pretty good documentary on National Geographic from years and years ago um, called uh, Triple Threat. No, Triple Cross. Triple Cross. Um, Because Ali Muhammad was an Egyptian army officer, a Green Beret in the United States Army, an FBI informant, I believe a CIA informant also, and he was a security advisor for Osama bin Laden, and he was a bodyguard for Osama bin Laden, and he was a logistics supervisor for Osama bin Laden, and he trained bin Laden's people, and he trained terrorists to conduct various, how to take over planes, how to do surveillance, how to make bombs, how to pick out locations for bombs to be placed. Um, I mean, just prolific in the training he with that he <clears throat> he advised on so many terrorist attacks um and did the original surveillance for the Kobar Towers attacks um Ali Muhammad he was convicted in um 98 he pled guilty in 98 1998 and then he was due to be sentenced and they kept they didn't ever schedule a sentencing date for him because he was such a resource of intelligence. They kept him locked up in a um, the witness protection part of a federal prison, and they continuously interviewed him about various plots and about various information until they would get, trying to get him to provide more information. And basically, he was convicted for his role in the Kobar Towers attack and other attacks, but he um, was never sentenced. And, um, he just kept being, he just got stuck in the system as someone who was like disappeared into the prison system to be used as a, um, a resource for law enforcement and Intel community. Kind of what kind of similar to what I think happened with Jeffrey Epstein, by the way. Only with Epstein, instead of putting off his sentencing forever and disappearing him into the system. They disappeared him through uh, by faking his death, in my opinion, in my opinion. So, um, all right, back to this article. The document also suggests that he planned his initial meeting with the hijackers and that he had multiple phone conversations with the roommate of someone who provided support to bin Laden, probably Ali Muhammad. CBS has previously reported that about a notebook recovered at Bayoumi's home by British police. The notebook had a handwritten drawing of a plane and a mathematical equation that may have been used in preparation for the attack, an assessment that appeared in the sworn declaration of a pilot interviewed by investigators. The FBI document also mentions other people in the investigation, including Fahad Altumari, 
who was an imam at the King Fahd Mosque in Los Angeles and an accredited Saudi diplomat at the consulate, according to the 9-11 Commission report. The Operation Encore document references a call from Tumeri's phone to the home of two men who would later be detained at Guantanamo Bay. And it says that a person whose name is redacted, quote, was asked by Tumeri to assist Hazmi and Midhar while they were in Los Angeles. It cites reporting that Tumeri and another individual used influence with the Saudi government to keep someone employed at the Saudi consulate whom the consulate wanted to fire for distribution of extremist Muslim literature. And it says Tumeri was in phone contact with suspects connected to the Al-Qaeda, to Al-Qaeda and a plot to bomb Los Angeles International Airport. According to 9-11 Commission report, Tumeri denied promoting violent jihad. The report concluded after exploring the available leads, we have not found evidence that Tumeri provided assistance to the two operatives. The FBI investigation also looked at hijackers on the East Coast, such as the ones that were in Falls Church, Virginia, with hijackers and two other individuals that, that occurred in a uniquely similar fashion to the way Bayumi initially described his first meeting with the hijackers in Los Angeles. The declassification is part of a pu- push by families from 9-11 who are suing Saudi Arabia for money and demanding to know if the government provided aid to the hijackers. Okay, so the key stuff in here is the connection to the Saudis. That is what the Bush administration wanted buried and hidden. And the CIA and FBI headquarters wanted buried and hidden away. They didn't want anybody talking about connections between hijackers and the Saudis. Can't let people be looking into that. April 27th, 2022, one year ago. Also from Catherine Harridge at CBS. Newly released video shows 9-11 hijackers with alleged Saudi intelligence operative. While President Biden signed an executive order last fall to declassify 9-11 evidence, the families of some 9-11 victims say they had to go through the British court to get records and video seized from two decades ago from an alleged Saudi government operative that had never been public until now. This guy, Brett Eagleson, is leading a group of families fighting for the documents. He was 15 years old when his father, Bruce, was killed in the World Trade Center South Tower. And 20 years later, he wants his children to know what he calls the secret of 9-11 and who was behind the plot to kill their grandfather. Quote, will the Justice Department now explain to families and to America why they did not pursue charges against Saudi national Omar al-Bayoumi, who we were just talking about in the last article? And most astonishingly, why did this information come from the UK government and not our own FBI? Less than two weeks after 9-11, boxes of evidence, including personal notes and video, were seized by British police from a home in Birmingham, England. Buried inside the trove is a home video from 2000, now being seen publicly for the first time. The event was described in 9-11 Commission records as part of the as a party at the San Diego apartment of Nawaf Al-Hazmi and Khalid Midhar, the, two, the first two hijackers to arrive in the U.S. in January of 2000. Now, this is why this is so important, this investigation. Because it's not, it's not just the Saudi thing. It's that 
these two guys, Ahazmi and Al-Midhar, were the first two hijackers to arrive in the U.S. If you can pull this thread, you can get to Saudi intelligence being the proxies of the CIA. And if you pull this thread, you can get to how these two hijackers came to be in the U.S. and why and who sent them and who was behind them and who was behind them. This is getting back to the very, very beginning of the 9-11 plot. While the two hijackers apparently avoided the video camera at the party, a handful of frames captured Midhar in the kitchen. Along with Hazmi, their team would later commandeer Flight 77 that slammed into the Pentagon. The party's host was Saudi national Omar al-Bayoumi, and he was arrested by British police less than two weeks after the attack that killed 3,000 Americans in New York at the Pentagon and in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. The British seized videos and documents from Bayoumi. Three years after the attack, the 9-11 Commission said, quote, we have seen no credible evidence that he, Bayoumi, believed in ex violent extremism or knowingly aided extremist groups. Though a newly declassified and heavily redacted FBI memo from 2017 stated, quote, in the late 1990s and up to September 11, 2001, Omar al-Bayoumi was paid a monthly stipend as a co-optee of the Saudi General Intelligence Presidency via the Ambassador Prince Bandar bin Sultan. Now, guys, remember in that other article I said, or I made comment on how he was treated when he went to the Saudi consulate as if he was some sort of official. Well, he was, he was part of the Saudi general intelligence presidency. Thanks to ambassador Prince Bandar bin Sultan. Allegations of Al Bayoumi's involvement with Saudi intelligence were not confirmed at the time of the nine 11 commission report. The above information confirms these allegations. Another recent FBI memo from the same year, recently declassified, citing source reporting, said, quote, there is a 50-50 chance Omar al-Bayoumi had advanced knowledge the 9-11 terrorist attacks were to occur. The declassified records pertain to a long-secret investigation codenamed Operation Encore, which centered on the two hijackers who lived in San Diego and who have may have assisted them. Retired FBI agent Danny Gonzalez, who worked on Operation Encore, told CBS News last fall that he believes Bayoumi was part of the hijackers' U.S.-based support network. He helped them with apartments. He helped them with bank accounts. Gonzalez and another FBI agent, Ken Williams, are working on behalf of the families of some 9-11 victims in their litigation against the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Williams wrote a memo before 9-11 that warned potential terrorists, terrorists were taking flight lessons in Arizona. Williams said this guy was an employee of the government of Saudi Arabia. According to a spokesman for the 9-11 families, the British files contained over 14,000 pages of documents, more than 20 hours of video, and many hours of audio interrogation of Bayoumi by British counterterrorism police. As part of their lawsuit, they are seeking money, the families are, from Saudi Arabia. Um, they have subpoenaed the FBI for Bayoumi's records, but they have only been provided a fraction of them. 
Among the records released by British authorities was a notepad. As first reported by CBS News in August 2021, the FBI twice quizzed an American pilot in 2012 about the significance of the hand-drawn plane and mathematical equation. According to a sworn declaration for the court, the pilot said it might be used to view a target and then calculate the rate of descent to the target. Quote, I shared with the FBI my opinion that there was a reasonable basis to believe that the drawing and equation were used as part of the preparations of the al-Qaeda terrorists to carry out the 9-11 attacks. In another video that is believed to be from 9-11, Bayoumi is seen warmingly greeting and embracing the American Muslim cleric Anwar al-Walaki, who also supported the hijackers in San Diego and then in Virginia in the months before the 9-11 attack. He was later killed in the CIA drone strike in 2011. Al-Laki was the first American target for death by the agency as a senior leader of al-Qaeda affiliated in Yemen, which is responsible for failed plots, including the attempted 2009 underwear bombing of a passenger jet on Christmas Day. Al-Laki is also blamed for the radicalization of Americans through his digital propaganda and the rise of homegrown terrorism. Now, to the news story. So on Defected last night, I mentioned this article, which is from the Florida Bulldog Small Operation um, 501c3 Journalism Outfit. Um, I looked at their staff. They're all like former Miami Herald or Cleveland Plain Dealer. Like they have, they've either worked in journalism at some other outfit I'm familiar with, or they've, they're, they're all like seem like credible people, basically is what I'm saying. And this is the one that I showed, the document that I showed or the article I showed last night on Defected. And it includes this 22-page declaration by this investigator who is pictured right here, Donald Canestaro. But I found out some more last night that I kind of wish I had known on Defected, but it's okay. Um, this guy has been charged with investigating this as part of the um, commissioned officers for Guantanamo Bay. So... It's basically like the uh, civil defense attorneys. Not, they're not civil, though, but it's they're basically defense attorneys for um, the 9-11 detainees to give them a fair trial. And he's an investigator that's working for the military commission. And so he's investing, investigating 9-11, and he's specifically investigating Bayoumi's role. And he came out with this 22-page document. And what I found last night, I found his website, by the way, he's um 20-something year DEA special agent, um, very capable investigator, familiar with terrorism and intelligence. This guy knows what he's doing. But I found that on March 22nd, this story, this is the actual origin of this surfacing. It wasn't the Bulldog article right here. It goes back to this spy talk website which looks like i think it's it's just um substack but they have a um custom url spytalk.co but the author here is seth hetna who i'm familiar with because he's written at rolling stone and um he's from san diego and he is the guy who did a FOIA request to doj over a um over this uh this case that involved the Trump organization and through that FOIA request ended up proving that the Trump organization is still active as a 
um, FBI asset. And it's a case that I've cited a number of times and that Dawson S. Field has cited a number of times because it proves that they prove that the um, FBI couldn't reveal the information he wanted. And the reason was because the Trump organization is an asset and helped bust these people. Um, so this is his article on it. And this is what I'm going to read to you is this is his original reporting on this document uh, being unredacted. So he says, let me get some coffee first. Like many great stories, this one begins with a brief mundane scene whose significance only becomes apparent later on. Around lunchtime on February 1st, 2000, a man dropped a piece of paper near a table in a Middle Eastern restaurant outside Los Angeles and paused long enough to strike up a conversation with two Arabic-speaking men dining nearby. It would take FBI agents nearly 20 years to understand the full meaning of that small event. The man who dropped the piece of paper was Omar al-Bayoumi, a Saudi intelligence asset recently declassified FBI documents show. And the two Arabic-speaking men with whom he struck up a conversation with were Nawaf al-Hazmi and Khalid al-Midhar, the first two future 9-11 hijackers to arrive in the United States. Was this meeting, as the alleged agent later claimed to investigators, mere happenstance? Or was it an intelligence operation being conducted on U.S. soil? It was an intelligence operation, according to the previously unreported court filing Spy Talk has obtained, that corroborates and expands our understanding of this extraordinary meeting, which took place just as the 9-11 plot was taking shape. The court filings detail a five-year inquiry by an investigator for the Guantanamo Military Commission into whether the meeting at the Mediterranean Gourmet Restaurant was an operation that involved not only Saudi agents, but CIA officers as well. The theory that the CIA had launched a failed effort to recruit the hijackers through the Saudis has been around for years and was always circumstantial at best. But the document obtained by Spy Talk reveals there is more evidence to support it. One former FBI agent claimed to the investigator that the CIA possesses top secret operational files and a paper trail about the Saudi spy who met the hijackers that are still being suppressed. A CIA spokesperson denied that the intelligence agency was hiding the information. The FBI declined to comment. The revelations were found in a 21-page document filed in 2021 at the Guantanamo Bay Naval Base in Cuba, where the cases of the 9-11 defendants are being heard. The document was on the public docket, but went unreported because it was completely redacted except for an unclassifying mark. Spy talk obtained an unredacted copy. The legal filings consist of summaries of interviews with, the, with anonymous FBI agents, 9-11 Commission staff, and others who investigated the attacks on New York and Washington. It was compiled by Don Canestraro, an investigator for the Office of Military Commissions, as the court hearing the cases of the 9-11 defendants is formally known. Conestraro previously served for more than two decades as an agent with the Drug Enforcement Administration. I don't know that he mentions the number of interviews. I want to grab it and tell you what it is because I want you to know how many. It's um, he, As part of this 22-page report, he interviewed 11 ex-FBI agents, two ex-CIA agents, a CNN investigative journalist, 
former Deputy National Security Advisor Richard Clark, and former Senator Bob Graham of Florida, who was the co-chair of the of Congress's joint inquiry into 9-11. The second. Conestraro's filing is chock full of new details about the multiple investigations into 9-11. And it follows the release last year of declassified FBI documents that offered an unprecedented portrait of Saudi intelligence operations inside America. Read together, this new information raises issues that go to the heart of America's fraught relationship with the oil-rich kingdom and the 9-11 attacks. Four unnamed former FBI agents involved in the 9-11 investigation told Canestraro that they believed the CIA was covering up an operation on U.S. soil to penetrate al-Qaeda. The most explosive allegations come from a former FBI agent who spoke to Canestraro in June 2021. The former agent identified only as CS-23, confidential source number 23, was described as having, quote, extensive knowledge of counterterrorism and counterintelligence matters. CS-23 pointedly described the meeting between the Saudi agent and the hijackers at the Middle Eastern Gourmet Restaurant as part of, quote, an operation directed by the Central Intelligence Agency, end quote, and indicated that the CIA has, quote, operational files on Bayoumi that predicted 9-11. All right. This this is so, like, I don't even know if profound is the word for it, but this is exactly what has been theorized by conspiracy theorists. What's going on is that the CIA has been running operations in the U.S., but using other nations' intel agencies to do it, using them as proxies so that the CIA didn't get directly caught or implicated in running said operations in the U.S. And here, we have a person testifying to firsthand knowledge that the operation was being conducted by the CIA. They were the ones behind this whole thing, and they were trying to penetrate Al-Qaeda, which doesn't really make sense because they, they're responsible for the creation of Al-Qaeda. Um, in fact, Al-Qaeda or Al-Qaeda translates to the base. And I'm pretty sure, if I recall correctly, it's a reference to the base that the CIA set up in Afghanistan. So their name is literally the base, as in the base that the CIA set up. Second part of this is that they have operational files indicating that Bayoumi was part of this. And they hid that from investigators. Ah. They hid that from investigators. I'm trying to mute that NWO person. There we go. Which threw the whole investigation off ever since. Before 9-11, according to CS-23, 
The CIA was determined to get human source inside Osama bin Laden's terror network, and the arrival of two members of al-Qaeda in Southern California in January 2000 offered an unprecedented opportunity. The CIA is legally barred from collecting information on U.S. citizens, quote, but its foreign intelligence collection mission can be conducted anywhere, according to the agency website. After 9-11, CS-23 told Canestraro, quote, FBI officials in San Diego and at FBI headquarters became aware of both Bayoumi's affiliation with Saudi intelligence and subsequently the existence of the CIA's operation to recruit Hazmi and Midhar through Bayoumi. Senior FBI officials suppressed investigations into the matter. CS-23's account could not be independently verified. Conestrero said all the former CIA officers and FBI agents he spoke with were granted an anonymity, and Conestrero said he could not put spy talk in touch with CS-23 without violating attorney-client privilege. Conestraro said that his investigation would not have been possible without initial assurances of confidentiality. The FBI has tried to silence at least one former agent who spoke publicly about Saudi Arabia and the 9-11 investigation. In a 2019 letter, a copy of which was obtained by Spy Talk, the Bureau reminded the agent of the duty of the confidentiality he agreed to when he joined the Bureau and instructed him to clear all future disclosures with headquarters. That's from 2019. Mm. Still trying to keep it buried. The starting point for this investigation, Canestraro wrote, was Omar al-Bayoumi, the Saudi man who met with the two hijackers in the Middle Eastern restaurant on Venice Boulevard in Culver City. Bayoumi played a critical role in helping the two newly arrived hijackers settle in the United States. He encouraged the two men to come to San Diego, and once there, he helped them open bank accounts, found them an apartment, paid their security deposit, co-signed their lease, and threw a welcoming party for them. He also introduced the hijackers to Anwar al-Alaki, then an imam at the mosque in San Diego, California, who, quote, reportedly served as their spiritual advisor during their time in San Diego, according to the Joint Congressional Committee's report on 9-11. Al-Alaki was killed in a drone strike in Yemen in 2011. Lawyers for the 9-11 defendants in Guantanamo have asked a judge to order the CIA, the FBI, Congress, and the 9-11 Commission to turn over all documents related to Bayoumi. Quote, people in a position to know have suggested the CIA concealed information about Hazmi and Midar's travel because the CIA wanted to recruit them through Saudi intelligence, which would go a long way to support the defense theory that the United States and Al-Qaeda are not at war. Defense lawyers wrote in a motion to compel discovery. Conestrao's affidavit was attached to the motion. A judge in the slow-moving military commissions has still not yet ruled on the motion. Bayoumi was a subject of an FBI investigation that stretched more than 20 years, and he has long been suspected to have been Saudi intelligence. But he was certainly no James Bond. He was frequently spotted videotaping events at the local mosque. Even one of the hijackers thought Bayoumi was a spy, according to the 9-11 Commission. 
He lived with his family in San Diego on a student visa, despite not attending classes. He received a salary from the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia for a job he never performed. But Bayoumi told FBI agents in Riyadh in 2003 that the claim that he was a spy, quote, was absolutely not true. Bayoumi told the 9-11 Commission that Hazmi's description of him as a spy hurt him very much. Robert McFadden, a former senior counterterrorism agent with the Naval Criminal Investigative Service, tells Spy Talk he understood Bayoumi's complaint. Bayoumi was likely a useful, marginally employed Saudi government fixer and facilitator for Riyadh, who took care of idiot expats like the Hazmi brothers and Khalid al-Midhar, who had never traveled to the U.S. before or had much English. Most importantly, Bayoumi would keep an eye on any known or suspected Saudi opposition activity. Bayoumi appeared on the FBI's radar before 9-11, when he attracted suspicion from a San Diego apartment manager. According to CS23, FBI special agents in San Diego queried the CIA as part of that inquiry. The agency reported that it had no information on Bayoumi. That was a falsehood, CS23 told Conestro in June 2001. CS23 stated that the CIA maintained operational files on Omar al-Bayoumi, CS23 explained to me that operational files are those related to an intelligence operation conducted by a given agency. CS23 further explained that he, she was aware of a paper trail concerning Al-Bayoumi. Conestrao says CS23's account suggests the CIA hid critical evidence from the FBI about an agent of Saudi intelligence. Quote, the CIA did not share all it knew about Bayoumi with the FBI both prior to and after the 9-11 attacks. Certainly, this impacted the FBI's investigation into Bayoumi. A CIA spokesperson strongly disputed that claim, but stopped short of claiming that such files do not exist. He said the allegation that CIA is hiding information related to the attacks of September 11th is false. CIA has fully complied with Executive Order 14040 of September 2021, which mandated the review and wherever possible public release of government information collected and generated in the United States and government's investigation of the attacks. In keeping with the executive order, the CIA declassified the maximum amount of information possible in hundreds of documents which are now publicly available online. A veteran CIA case officer involved in a 9-11 investigation tells Spy Talk that there very well may be some more information on Bayoumi in a file somewhere in the agency. The CIA has contact with many people over the world and case officers are required to document them. But the possibility that a CIA officer met Bayoumi once years ago doesn't mean anything on its own. And FBI agents making a big deal out of that are just trying to shift blame from the Bureau's failure to heed the pre-9-11 warnings of its own agents. An FBI agent in Phoenix, for example, requested an investigation of terrorist training at U.S. flight schools. Another agent in Minnesota wrote a memo theorizing that Zacharias Musawi, now serving life in prison for his role in the attacks, seemed like a terrorist planning to fly a plane into the World Trade Center. That's a quote. Both of them were ignored. Quote, for them to say we're holding out on them now, fuck you. The CIA veteran says, that's what I want to say all of, to all of you. Fuck you, assholes. 3,000 people dead and 22 years later, you're still trying to wash the stain off the FBI. Another CIA veteran told Spy Talk he found the recruiting theory laughable, 
The Saudis would never allow the CIA to recruit one of their own citizens, but he said he wouldn't put anything past the personnel in Alex Station, as the CIA's bin Laden station was known, including going out of channels to try to recruit Hazmi and Midhar. So, CIA and FBI trying to blame each other for 9-11. The comment about Saudi, the Saudis would never allow the CIA to recruit one of their own citizens. It's an interesting comment. Maybe they didn't need to. Maybe they didn't need to recruit him. Maybe they were involved already. It wouldn't be the first time or last time years after former FBI special agent and private investigator Robert Levinston went missing in Quiche Island, Iran in 2007, for example, his family learned that he had gone, quote, at the direction of certain CIA analysts who had no authority to run operations overseas, according to the Washington Post investigation. The CIA had told the Senate Intelligence Committee and FBI that the spy agency had nothing to do with him going to Iran. The two former CIA case officers who spoke to Canestraro saw Alex Station as a place where the normal rules didn't apply. Located in a Northern Virginia office outside CIA headquarters, Alex Station was stuffed with analysts who saw themselves as operatives. Even though they were not undercover, the analysts would refer to each other by their code names around the office. Despite their limited operational training, the analysts at Alex Station would also direct operations in the field and even went so far as to block one operation targeting Al-Qaeda, according to Conestrero's interviews. CS10, a 25-year CIA veteran, told me that the analyst at UBL station felt that they could undertake operations as easily as the case officers, even though they had not been trained in covert intelligence gathering techniques. The other former CIA officer, CS11, told Kenneth Stroud that it would have been difficult for any of the analysts to run an operation out of UBL station without approval from other CIA officers. The theory about a failed CIA recruitment effort surfaced in Lawrence Wright's Pulitzer Prize-winning 2007 book, The Looming Tower, Al-Qaeda and the Road to 9-11. Mark Rossini, a former FBI agent detailed to the CIA, was the first former insider to go public with his belief that the spy agency sought to use Bayoumi to recruit the hijackers. Richard Clark, the National Security Council counterterrorism coordinator in the Clinton and Bush White Houses, followed with a 2016 article claiming that a major element of the 9-11 tragedy remained unrevealed. Clark wrote that he too believed that the CIA had used Bayoumi to approach the hijackers in what he called a false flag operation. Clark tells Spy Talk that he began to suspect something was amiss when CIA Director George Tenet paid a personal visit to his office in the White House after 9-11. The CIA Inspector General was examining whether the agency had done enough to stop the attacks. Tenet, accompanied by two of his lieutenants, Kofer Black and Richard Blee, asked Clark to write a letter to the Inspector General, John Helgerson, praising the agency's performance. 
Clark was a little hesitant to write a letter on Tennant's behalf, but he eventually did say something along the lines of what they asked for. What struck Clark as odd was how nervous the CIA director seemed. Quote, what was shocking to me was here's the CIA director really worried about a CIA inspector general investigation into him and his relationship to 9-11. That's one of the reasons I've often thought that my recruitment theory was probably right. What struck Clark as odd was how ner- wait, sorry. Philip Zelikow, former executive director of the 9-11 Commission, has said there was no evidence to support such a theory. If the recruitment theory posited by Clark and Rossini were true, there would be evidence of a recruitment effort, some CIA attempt to locate and contact Al Midhar and Al Hazmi. There is no such evidence, nor was there any evidence of a recruitment plan or even the consideration of one, Delacar wrote in a 2017 article. He did not return emails to spy talk about this article. Several former FBI agents told Canestraro that the alleged recruitment effort explained one of the most glaring intelligence-sharing failures in the run-up to 9-11, the CIA's failure to notify the FBI upon learning that the hijackers were headed to the United States. Not only did the CIA fail to take the simple step of putting the hijackers' names on a watch list, it also blocked FBI agents detailed to the CIA from sending a memo informing headquarters. 19 months later, Midhar and Hosmi were part of a team that hijacked American Airlines Flight 77 and crashed it into the Pentagon. They knew and they just let it happen. They knew and they just let it happen and they blocked FBI agents from getting line of sight into the operation. They just... They just allowed it because it was to their... It was to their advantage, wasn't it? They were thinking about those poppy fields in Afghanistan. Rossini was an eyewitness to the CIA's efforts to prevent his headquarters from learning that Midhar had multiple entry U.S. visa. Rossini declined to comment for the record of this story, but in interviews in 2015 and a brief memoir that was published online, Rossini revealed that a CIA officer in the agency's bin Laden station ordered him in early 2000 to keep silent. It was, quote, not a matter for the FBI, Rossini says he was told. The next Al-Qaeda attack is going to be in the Southeast Asia, and if, if and when we want to let the FBI know, we will, and you are not to say anything. Rossini did not name the CIA officer, but she was previously been identified as uh, Michael Ann Casey. The CIA's inspector general concluded that the agency's failure to push or to pass the information on Hosmi and Minhar's arrival to the FBI until August 2001 was not a mistake born out of reluctance to share it, but rather one born out of poor implementation, guidance, and oversight of process designed to foster exchanges. An anonymous CIA officer subsequently identified as Tom Wilshire, a former deputy chief of the bin Laden station, told the Joint Congressional Committee investigating 9-11, quote, something apparently was dropped somewhere and we don't know where that was. <laughs> Boy, that's difficult to accept. And I won't accept it. I don't. Spy Talk was able to identify some of Canestraro's sources. Rossini's previous statements fit those of the former FBI agent in Canestraro's filing as CS23 or CS3. The statement of CS4 matches the account in Newsweek of James Bernazzani, who oversaw the FBI contingent in the CIA's counterterrorist center. 
and described how he hu- he rushed word on Hosmi Minhar down to headquarters as soon as he learned of it. Rossini's statement to Conestrao adds a new wrinkle to his version of events. A few years after 9-11, Rossini says he was at CIA headquarters when he first heard James Pavitt, the CIA Deputy Director for Operations and Director George Tenet, discuss the 9-11 Commission's request to speak with Michael and Casey, the CIA officer, who instructed him that Midhart's visa was, quote, not a matter for the FBI. Pavitt, see, man, see, that line right there, look, he's they're saying... Midhar, one of the first of two hijackers to arrive in the U.S., that their visa, quote, was not a matter for the FBI. What does that tell you? Okay, well, who's it a matter for? The CIA. It's a matter for the CIA. They don't want the FBI looking at their operatives. They don't want the FBI looking at, looking at what they're doing and looking at their people who they're bringing to the U.S., Pavitt told told Tenet that he was glad the CIA had kept Casey away from the 9-11 commission. And Tenet agreed it was a good idea. They didn't want the 9-11 commission knowing what they were up to. CS3 stated that the conversation indicated two CIA officials had conspired to obstruct the 9-11 commission. Boom. Boom. Somebody get arrested. <laughs> Somebody arrest these people. The CIA did not respond to questions about the purported conversation. Tenet did not return a message. Pavitt died last December. Isn't that convenient? Rossini left the FBI in 2008 after pleading guilty to criminally accessing an FBI database for information that was later used for the Hollywood private eye Anthony Pelicano. He pleaded not guilty last year in federal corruption case involving a former governor of Puerto Rico. Canastraro's court filing in Guantanamo also raises long simmering questions about the Saudi government and 9-11. 15 of the 19 hijackers were from Saudi Arabia. Was Saudi government connected in any way to the terrorist plot? Yes. Did any Saudi government official have prior knowledge of the attack on New York and Washington? Bet. Yes, the U.S. intelligence community has been grappling with those questions for years. The CIA Inspector General's 9-11 review team reported in 2005 that it found no evidence that the Saudi government knowingly and willingly supported al-Qaeda. But newly declassified documents revealed that, at a minimum, the Saudi government knew far more about Hazmi and Midhar's arrival in America than it was letting on. Another one of Conestraro's interviewees identified as CS8, told him that the diplomatic pressure he exerted on the FBI not to investigate the Saudi government's connection to the 9-11 attacks. The person did not elaborate. Wait, wait, wait. CS8 told Canestraro that diplomatic pressure, quote, unquote, was exerted on the FBI not to investigate the Saudi government's connections to the 9-11 attacks. Boom. That's another right there. Bush administration and the Saudis covering up for the CIA so they could start a war. 
and they put pressure on the FBI. They blocked the FBI and they put pressure on the FBI not to look at the Saudi government connections, not to talk to the 9-11 commission about it, never to mention it, bury it, bury it, because we want war. Can't let that out. A recently declassified FBI memo from 2017 revealed the Bureau's belated discovery that Bayoumi was paid a monthly stipend as a co-optee of the Saudi General Intelligence Presidency. A co-optee is a citizen of a country, but not an officer or an employee of a country's intelligence service who assists that service on a temporary opportunity basis, a contractor. The memo notes that the allegations of Bayoumi's involvement with Saudi intelligence were not confirmed at the time of the 9-11 Commission report. They made sure they weren't confirmed which had concluded that Bayoumi was, quote, an unlikely candidate for clandestine involvement with Islamic extremists. I've got to hurry because I really need to end the show, but there's more. Bayoumi was part of Saudi intelligence network that defied conventions. The head of the Saudi General Intelligence Presidency before 9-11 was the veteran spy master, Prince Turkey Al-Fasal. Bayoumi, however, was paid out of channels by and reported to Prince Bandar bin Sultan al-Saud, the longtime Saudi ambassador to the United States and close friend of the Bush family. Surprise, surprise. Information that Bayoumi collected on persons of interest in the Saudi community in San Diego and in Los Angeles was forwarded to Prince Bandar, not Prince Turkey. Prince Bandar and his wife, Princess Haifa al-Fasal, also sent money to a close associate of Bayoumi, in San Diego, and the associate's wife. The CIA, which had a close relationship with Prince Bandar, saw the Saudi embassy intelligence network as business as usual. Quote, this is normal intelligence collection from any embassy in the West, the CIA veteran who worked on the 9-11 investigation says. The United States and Saudi Arabia had reached an understanding through a covert alliance that went back decades. Dasting. In the 1970s, Saudi Arabia joined forces with the United States and other countries to fight communism, especially in Africa, where the Soviet Union was backing an array of rebel groups and organizations. The alliance became known as the Safari Club. Saudi Arabia bankrolled U.S. intelligence operations and set up covert banking services for the agency. Later, on the Saudis funded the anti-communist Nicaraguan Contra rebels at the request of the Reagan White House and the CIA. The Saudis also showered money on the Afghan Mujahideen as they battled the occupying Soviet Red Army in the 1980s. Thousands of Saudis traveled to Afghanistan to fight alongside the Mujahideen, including Osama bin Laden, who went on to found Al-Qaeda, the base, with money from his wealthy family. The CIA veteran involved in the 9-11 investigation detailed another little-known example of Saudi cooperation after the attacks. Shortly after September 11th calamity, the Saudis loaded a plane with reams of information on Al-Qaeda and delivered it to the CIA. Quote, it was the most impressive data dump I've ever seen in my life, the former CIA case officer says. It was every piece of information they might have had about anybody who might have been Al-Qaeda. That information would prove critical years later in identifying a courier and adding to the puzzle that led the agency to Osama bin Laden's hideout in Pakistan. The Saudi CIA cooperation was not always smooth. Cooperation, yeah. After 9-11, there was a curious dispute that involved Saudi princes Turkey and Bandar, the CIA, and the first two hijackers to arrive in the United States. The usually secretive Saudi's officials publicly revealed several intelligence tips they provided to the United States. 
Prince Turkey told the Associated Press that his agency had passed word to the CIA in late 1999 and early 2000 that Hazmi and Midhar were members of Al-Qaeda. What we told them was there were people were on our watch list from previous activities of Al-Qaeda and in both the embassy bombings and attempts to smuggle arms into the kingdom. In addition, Nawaf Obeid, a security consultant to the Saudi government, told author, um, author Lawrence Wright that the names of the future hijackers were given to the then station chief in Riyadh. That wasn't the only tip the U.S. intelligence community had on the hijackers. In late, teen, ni- late 1999, the U.S. intelligence community intercepted communications revealing that Khalid Midhar and Nawaf Hazmi had been summoned to an Al-Qaeda meeting in Malaysia. A CIA desk officer noted that something more nefarious was afoot. A heads up from Saudi intelligence would go a long way to help explain why the CIA was so closely tracking Hazmi and Midhar as they made their way to the United States in 2000. The CIA, however, furiously denied Prince Turkey's account. Boom. Saying it did not receive any information from Saudi Arabia about the two future hijackers. Prince Bandar then issued a clarification on Prince Turkey's account. There were, quote, no documents sent by Saudi Arabia regarding Midhar and Hazmi prior to September 11th. In other words, there was no paper trail for Congress, the FBI, and 9-11 Commission to find. Prince Turkey later retracted his statement in an interview with author Lawrence Wright. So it sounds like Prince Turkey tried to be up front and Bandar overrode him. Perhaps Prince Turkey got it wrong or lied for his own reasons, or perhaps his comments had touched on secrets that the Saudis were just as desperate to conceal as the CIA. I think that's it. In 2007, the FBI opened Operation Encore to examine the network that supported Hazmi and Midhar when they arrived in the United States barely able to speak English. The FBI closed Operation Encore in 2021 after finding insufficient evidence to charge any Saudi government official with conspiring to help the hijackers carry out the 9-11 attack. All right, guys, there is another section of this, but I have to go. I'm out of time. I'm going to be late to pick up my kid. So, um, this article is at spytalk.co, and I will share it later on my socials. But I find it really interesting, and I know that people have very firm views, and they feel committed to their theories about 9-11 and what they think happened that day. And I have my own too, but to me, what's coming out right now is it just, it just gives us more information towards that segment of the conspiracy of Saudi intelligence and CIA working in America with these hijackers before the event happened, blocking intel from reaching the right people before 9-11 happened, making sure the FBI wasn't aware of it, making sure law enforcement couldn't interfere with it, and then covering it up after the fact. The Bush family letting the Saudis get out of country before any of them could be interrogated or just questioned, you know, like... I think, like, the the, the cover-up of 9-11 is just as much, if not more, of a scandal than what happened right before it. And 
I find it all fascinating. And I, I would just recommend to people to try and engage with it, um, with an attitude to understand rather than react to it. Like, don't let your own theory of what you think happened that day interfere with taking in new information. Um, because we're probably all going to find out that we have some things right and we have some things wrong. What also stands out to me about this new information is that it lines up pretty dang well with what's in the drops, doesn't it? It lines up pretty dang well. And I see, I get comments almost every day. Someone comments on something I share. Where's D class? We were told there would be D class. Where's D class? I just shared some with you. That's how it's happening. So um, I saw a massive rumble rant come in from Rhea. Thank you very much. And thank you for being a monthly supporter. Really appreciate it. Guys, if you like the show, hit the thumbs up. If um, if you uh, if you really want to support what I do, buymeacoffee.com slash justhuman, bensonhoneyfarms.com, repco justhuman, sign up for my substack, justhuman.substack.com. And or become a subscribe a monthly sub supporter subscriber over on Rumble. That's cool that they've now introduced that. I appreciate. It. Shout out to everybody over on Foxhole. Thank you guys for the cookies and the red pills, gold pills, all that. Cat girl, I don't think I can do a bonus hour tonight. Um, I would like to, but I don't think I can do a bonus hour tonight. If I am able to, I will definitely post about it and do it. But I don't think I can. And uh, yeah, I got to go. I'm going to be late. So God bless you guys. Remember, we're not going to win every battle, but we are going to win this war. See ya.